disease is taking root at that time. And if we're not addressing it then, then we're getting the diagnosis later on. That's what we need to get people to understand is everybody's waiting. They're waiting for the diagnosis. That's the problem. All behavior makes sense. But when we understand kind of how we're wired as human beings, and all of a sudden, a lot of things that seem counterintuitive, they actually make a lot of sense follow the fitness marketing model it's like here's this photo of me i look this way because i eat these things and i do this exercise you can just do that same thing too and then when you show up and find out that's not going to work for you All right, we're live again with Wellness Unfiltered and another special guest who I've had the pleasure of interviewing previously on the Between the Before and After podcast. And I loved her story so much that I thought it would be really helpful to bring her back onto this discussion where we're breaking down a lot of things that are wrong with with the way that we practice medicine and healthcare and the way that we kind of miss looking at the person as a whole. And I thought it's rather than us just bad ideas back and forth, let's talk to somebody who's had some serious experience in this realm. So um, we're welcoming Christine Handy, who is not only a, a cancer survivor, a mother, um, a model, uh, a master student at Harvard, a published author, a motivational speaker, and probably some other accolades that I might be forgetting, but I think that's a pretty good start. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, and so um, probably it's it's helpful to to um, dive into one of one of the like one of the biggest experiences you have. We'll, we'll just like dive straight into this. You know, um, we we chatted more about sort of the emotional and psychological side of the, the cancer journey on between the before and after. But uh, one of the things we didn't really have time to touch on is the the actual like could we say like the mechanics of the journey going through traversing like the the American medical system as as a a patient like this. And I think uh, prior to the diagnosis, I mean, did you really have any idea what you were in for uh, when this gets landed on your plate? Absolutely not. I did not have any contemporaries that had ever been diagnosed with cancer. My mom's best friend, who was obviously 25 years older, died of breast cancer. And that was my only measure. And so mm -hmm. when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I said to my well, the doctor that called me on the phone and said, you have breast cancer. I asked him one question, which was, am I going to die? And he didn't even answer. And so he, he just said, I need you to come tonight at five o'clock with your husband to talk about this. And I was like, I'm never going to make that meeting. <laughs> I'm, and I asked my husband who I'm not, I'm not, I'm long story. We're not together anymore. But I said to him, can you please go for me and just take notes? And he said, no, this is not my cancer. It's your cancer. I'm not, I, you're coming with me. And I was like, I'm not going. I was mm. so scared. So it was like that moment. And then like the first month I was like a total blur. And because I had just had my arm fused from another health issue, the bone grafts and the bone cadaver bones would have been would have dissolved with chemotherapy. So they couldn't start chemo for 30 days because they had to postpone it in order to preserve what they what my arm doctors had just done. So here I was faced with breast cancer. I couldn't move on with a protocol because of this situation. And I I, I really had no idea what was going to happen or how I was going to get through it, especially because I had so many other issues going out at the same time. I was like, how am I going to handle I can't drive. I couldn't drive at the time because I had a huge cast on my arm and they, I couldn't move my arm because the grafts needed to place themselves in a certain place and they it couldn't move it. So like my arm was constantly on my chest, like, like a, I held it like a baby because I didn't want the grafts to move. Cause if they moved, I'd have to have another surgery. So between caring for my arm and trying to carry for my young children and, and trying to go to figure out chemotherapy and postponement, I, I mean, I couldn't even sleep at night. It was so, crazy. There was too much happening, too much going on at the same time. I think I'm just still stuck on the fact that the doctor called you on the phone to give oh. you this news. I, I, and yeah, I think I, this is, you know, a good point of entry to talking about care in the medical community, because the fact that somebody's willing to deliver that kind of information in an impersonal manner, such as a phone call, I think is a, yeah is an unpleasant statement about the the way things are. And I'm not blaming the doctor. I mean, there's probably right. a reason why that was how it was done, but I can't think the doctor felt great about having to do that that way either. Well, interestingly enough, when he called, 
first of all, it's was, it was hard for me to physically pick up the phone because I, mean, I was in this massive cast. It was um, <laughs> from my fingertips to my shoulder. Yeah. And I was in a, and I was in a robe because I couldn't dress myself. So I was waiting for my husband to get home from wherever he was. I didn't know where he was. And I'm waiting to get, have him get me dressed. And I see my phone like, like vibrating on my, on my bed. And I, and I go over and I'm like tentatively walking over to my bed going, please God, no, please God, no. And here was this unknown number and I pick it up and I'm shaking. Right. And it was this very meek voice. Like it wasn't this like strong man who's like, Hey, you're tough. We're going to get through this. It was like this meek little man who had this small voice who was just like, you have an aggressive form of breast cancer. And I was like, that's it. Like, how about I'm sorry. How about this sucks? Something, <laughs> nothing. That's really, you know, when I think about that, maybe we could, maybe we could put it this way. How, how might you have preferred to receive, like, obviously it's hard enough to deliver that message. And, and someone else I recently was interviewing, we were talking about grief and how to, how to, how to have a conversation with somebody about grief. And this is a place where I think grief is going to be a powerful, a uh, felt emotion. Um, how might be yeah. an appropriate way to try to deliver like this r- incredibly difficult diagnosis? Life-changing. Yeah, I, I have a great idea. If you have a spouse, if this person has a spouse, you they should call that spouse. And then they should plan with the spouse to come into the office without alarming every you know somebody, the patient. Just say, hey, you know what? We're going to go through those results. We're going to go into his office, right? But to cold call me, and say, this is what you have. And I need to see you at five o'clock tonight. And by the way, it's eight in the morning. So now you have eight hours to ruminate of this in your head by yourself. That's the other thing. I think that they should find a way, you know, before they say anything, or if they have to say it on the phone, are you with somebody? Like, that would be a good start. Because if you're not say, you know what, I don't have the results yet. But I'm gonna call you back later. Can you have somebody with you? And even mm-hmm. though that's a little white lie, because they do have the results, it's better than somebody. I mean, I'll I never mean, forget that phone call by myself. Of course not. I mean, I think it speaks to how the medical industry te- tre- treats, not teaches, sorry, how the medical industry teaches yeah. patients. Then I said teaches again, didn't I? Treats patients. <laughs> because the reality is they're not treating you like a person they're treating you like a a thing an object to or a problem to solve and so they take the compassion out because that the compassionate response the like human response would to be you know to say are you alone do you have somebody you can come in with like hey we need to discuss something is there something you need that would be the compassionate medical response right i think we've lost her (laughs) yeah well because compassion is kind of in, in my wheelhouse and it's it's a big a big component of what i of what i do i wonder so i'm trying to ponder like why is the compassion missing and i wonder if from a medical so let's say like from this doctor's perspective here uh you, you're back uh you, know, the, <laughs> you temporarily froze where you know the, the question that i'm that i'm asking is why is the compassion missing and i wonder if from the perspective of the the medical practitioner a big portion of their practice or, or significant enough that it's notable is trying to deliver this sort of news to people on a regular basis. Like that has to take an emotional toll on the individual. And so I wonder if they, they try to emotionally divorce themselves from everything altogether, which is why the compassion is missing because of a fear of like, I'm not sure that I can, I'm not sure that I can handle being the deliverer of this news on a routine basis. Mm. Well, well, I can speak to that. I have. No, please go, ahead, go, go, go. Yeah, please. I was just going to say, I think also part of the problem is they, they don't want to give false hope when they can't say for sure if somebody's going to be okay. Because I also think, unfortunately, a big yeah. part is they're looking at the potential for being sued for promising something they can't promise, which I'm not backing them. There should still be compassion there, but I think there's a lot of doctors who don't have the emotional yeah. intelligence to add in compassion without um, without saying something that m- might give false hope. I think it, it, I hate to do it well, so early in the call, but I, 
I think it's this idea of us versus them. If, if this doctor's livelihood yeah. and situation feels threatened, he's going to prioritize yep. keeping himself safe versus or herself safe versus the client need, right? Or the patient need. And I think that's a really big problem. Like we can't have people who are in this situation delivering really desperate news or, you know, communicating really important information, feeling personally threatened, right? That's a, that's not a great way to start a relationship that relies heavily on trust. Well, I can speak to both of those things. One, I think that um, in the medical industry, they need to teach emotional intelligence, which they don't. The second thing that I think that they need to do is um, I understand the detachment, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and when, when she, when she comes back. Your, okay. Okay. Sorry. I don't know what's happening um, because I have all bars on my computer. I don't know why it's happening. Um, I do think that, so for me, because I've had so much trauma, I've been very, I've been very detached from everybody. Like I can get up in front of 10,000 people because that's my job is to be a professional speaker and tell my story of horrendous pain and not shed a tear and not even show any emotion, which by the way, some, some of my speaker agencies think that's a bad thing. They think I should try to fake a tear or two. Um, but I literally detached myself and I can see from a medical perspective, if you're telling women or men, whomever, children, or parents that their child has cancer, or that you, this, you, the person has cancer, you'd have to detach for some, for, for your own emotional sake. Right. But there is a difference between detaching and compassion. Mm. You can have both. Cause I do, I know that because I have that. I have an incredible compassion for people, but I'm incredibly detached. So they, but they're not teaching that. Right. And I think that's where they're going wrong. Well, I wonder if, if um, maybe in this situation, because the doctor, like you're not necessarily looking for the highest EQ or emotional intelligence in a medical provider. You're looking for the best, most skilled medical provider. And so this is in one sense, maybe not necessarily top priority or in their wheelhouse. So I don't think there's a position called this, but what about, you know, like a position within a facility, which is like deliverer of news. So you wouldn't maybe call it that, but genius. It's a genius idea. Or at least somebody, that needs to happen. Yeah. Sitting with the doctor in the room, you know, because I think you can't detach the two services either. I mm-hmm. think if you tried right. to do that, you'd be in trouble because you're going to have technical questions. You're going to have, you know, outcome questions. I and mean, all of this that. is such life changing news. I think they should send somebody to their house. Like, I mean, we're not talking about, oh, you have a cold. We're talking about you may not live yeah. at all. You may die. So I think it's worthy of somebody driving over instead of using a phone. I, I, that, that, that mentality, I don't understand it. I mean, that was the most, I mean, there were lots of really traumatic things that you described, but the thing I found the most traumatic was the yeah. fact that somebody didn't take enough time and care to handle right. you and your, you know, emotional state appropriately, because that can have a huge impact on your recovery as well. Let's be honest, you know, I I have a client story that um, he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And he nicknamed the first doctor he spoke to Dr. Doom, because the guy just literally told him there was no hope, forget it. And he's on year four now of surviving it. And had he not had the inner strength, the personal strength to go and seek out a second opinion, he would have taken what that doctor said and taken it as a death sentence and not gone on to find the person who did actually help him. So I think there is a lot of responsibility here. And Mm -hmm. having another role is a great idea for this. You know, it's how you make that a thing or what kind of training that involves, I think is a a pretty involved process. But the fact that your story is not unique, at least even in my practice as a, as a coach, I hear these stories. It's, it tells me that there's more of a systematic failing. I mean, which is why we're here, right? This is what we're talking about. You're absolutely right. (laughs) But I think it's a, it's a really, really sad thing when we are such an advanced society, advanced society, and we can't do an adequate job of taking care of people who really need it. Yeah. Well, think about um, like mental health professionals. This is their wheelhouse, yeah. right? 
and they they deal with this on a regular basis. And part of their skill set, part of their education, part of their learning is going to be around. I mean, I, as coaches, we already hear difficult enough stories from our clients, and we you know we understand that we're not in the role of mental health professional, but we can't we also can't ignore the fact that the reason clients are coming to us for help is very rarely just because, well, I want to look a little bit better, but right. somebody in that role, like they, they have, I believe the, the capacity to handle news like this, to be able to handle the people's reactions. And so on. they're trained in that way to, to be able to do this without necessarily taking all of it on personally and letting it become like this tremendous burden. And so I, I love the idea of having, you know, two professionals in the room where, it's like, you know, you have someone on the EQ side and someone on the, the technical side. And, and now you're definitely not alone in this. I think it really speaks back to this idea that there needs to be more of a care team rather than a specialist mm. approach. And we talked about this on a previous live stream that, you know, there's been a really big shift away from the generalist to like, you know, there's one family doctor, everybody went to him or her mm -hmm. and they knew you well. And so they were better able to sort of have a feel for what might be happening. And then they would refer you on. And the generalist has really lost a lot of traction, at least here in America. I'm not sure about in Canada, but they're hard yeah. to find. And they're not very easy to get in to see because they're booked out because there aren't very many because it's more lucrative to be a specialist. Mm -hmm. But you right. get what you get, you know, it's like they're extremely good at this narrow field. That's what being a specialist is. And so they don't have these extra skills that they need the like the rounded out version of being a doctor that's missing so like what does that care team look like who should be on that team yeah i was gonna say that too a care team more collaborative but then the problem especially here in america is like what would that cost and then insurance and then like you have that whole cycle of I think you could argue that it would probably eventually cost less because you'd be able to go more on a preventive Absolutely. side rather than a like, oops, everything is awful already. And now I, I have to fix it, you know, versus yeah. if you have somebody who's already your caregiver and you go and see them no matter what, because, you know, you've got a weird skin issue or you've got some digestive issue and you go in and they can take care of that. Initially, you don't wait so long to go mm -hmm. get your annual checks. You don't wait so long to take care of an issue. Right. And it's a clear pathway, right? Like that, I think this is something we've talked about a lot before too, is there's no clear pathway to care. Did you feel once you got that diagnosis that you knew exactly what the next steps were? Well, it's interesting because I think it's so dependent on the physician. So for instance, the doctor who messed up my arm, he destroyed my arm, right? That's, he did that that level of care, although he was the best doctor in Dallas and he went to Stanford and he had all these accolades, he destroyed my arm. But when I walked in to see my oncologist and, and by the way, after that, I didn't trust any doctors. And so when I went to meet my oncologist for the first time, I was like, I don't even, I don't even want to go in the room because I don't trust him. And immediately he said to me, I walked in and he goes, Oh, you're the girl with the arm. And he diffused all of that angst that I had. And he was like on my team the whole time he knew, you know, he was like, how's the arm doing? He, you know, spoke to my arm doctor in New York several times and, and they were kind of collaboratively treating me for cancer. Not, not my arm. My arm doctor wasn't treating me for cancer, but he was trying to save the bone grafts. And so I think it depends on the doctor, the personality and how they care for you. So going back to your question, when he was caring for me, I knew exactly what was going to happen because I trusted him and there was no confusion. Like when the arm doctor was caring for me, it was confusion all the time. And I didn't ultimately didn't trust him, but because he, he was doing things that were wrong and it was confusing to me and I couldn't understand it because he was telling me one thing, but what was happening was something different. Mm. And so you have all that confusion and you're going, well, wait, he has the medical, he is the medical doctor and I'm supposed to obey authority. And he did go get his medical degree and I didn't. So I'm supposed to trust him. But when things are chaotic and you go, I don't trust him. And then he tells you that don't question his authority. Then you, then you feel shame and then you back off. Right. That's like, mm -hmm. that's how we do, especially women. And so when I ultimately saw a second opinion for my arm, my arm was totally destroyed. And that doctor I trusted because he was like, what he did was wrong you know, you have people that show compassion, they change the trajectory of your health. 
Because if somebody is saying to you, I understand you've been in pain and I hear you and I'm listening and I'm going to make it right. Your hope, your, your, your mental state changes. So what do you have? You have like endorphins that are helping you versus like all this, this, uh, you know, all this stuff going into your lymphatic system that's hurting you from stress. So just the doctor alone can change your life. Mm, I and mean, it's, it's picking the picking the right doctor. And how do you do that? I don't know. I've I've picked terrible doctors and I've picked great doctors. But I think one of the standards should be when somebody walks into his doctor's office is is there compassion and is there not? And if I don't walk into a doctor's office that has compassion, I will walk out and, and poli- politely walk out because mm-hmm. I've seen the difference. So then I wonder if um, if we look at a systematic reason why some of this occurs, like why a doctor is like, I'm the authority, you can't question it. Is this like a defensive stance in place? Because like in particular, the U.S. is such a litigious society that they're trying to put up this this sort of wall of protection uh, around yeah. that. I actually think it There's goes back a lot yeah. farther than that. I think that it's, it's, if you look again, <laughs> here I go with the anthropology again, <laughs> I just can't <laughs> stop. Can I? But like, if we go back a little bit farther, like we had much stricter <clears throat> roles of authority and respect even a hundred years ago than we have now. And the doctor has always been an incredibly revered position in society. Correct. Right. Yeah. And so you have this, the, the, it's, they're not godlike, but they have this sort of apart from others perception yeah. that's been in society for hundreds of years now because they were they were almost magicians you know right. what they were exactly. doing and, and even there was a lot of pushback on initial science and study of physiology you know you can read all about that as well and so when you look at how that's been set up through generations of people it's it's one of the most challenging relationships to question for that reason, because generationally, really, these people have had all of the authority. And for the first time, I think really, that's getting called into question. And they're very uncomfortable with it, because they came up in the same system we did, which means they believe that they also have, you know, this knowledge base that nobody else has. And it's very affronting when somebody tells you you're, you know, you happen to be an actual expert in something, and somebody tells you you don't know what you're doing. How can you not respond with that with, you know, some kind of shameful shaming response yeah and so i think it's i yeah yeah no i totally agree with you and i totally i i'll give it one step further i think pride and ego gets in the way with these doctors for sure like when i was when i walked in and said this doesn't look right to me in the nicest way possible he wrote in his notes that i was a hysterical housewife i never shed a tear in his office and and he wrote in his notes that i was all these things and because we went to court like he destroyed oh. my arm. We went to court. By the way, we won, we won for, for malicious malpractice. That's he's bullying me. And and he lost. But it was because his pride and his ego, I was threatening his pride and his ego. And that goes back mm-hmm. to self-esteem. Oh, like if 100%. he was if he had a strong self-esteem, he'd be like, Okay, go see a second opinion. I'm good with that. Why? Because I'm secure in who I am and I'm secure in who I in, in my work. But if you threaten that. And and you guys have a guy here who thinks he's a god, and his self esteem is so um, kind of you know temporal based on accolades. Then there, that's dynamite, and that's what I went through with this doctor. That's a real shame. I'm sorry you had that experience. I mean, I don't think your story is you know unfortunately. It's, I don't. But think that's it's the thing; unique. it's not unique. It's not. But unique. and I think you saw like all of our reactions when you said yeah. that. We all were like, "Oh my god!" Like. The thought of yeah. being like you're a hysterical housewife. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's so much. Oh, I'll give you one phrasing. more. Yeah. I'll give you one more. He okay. So he ordered a blood test at the very beginning when my arm was looking like there was something else going on. He ordered a blood test <clears> and he buried it. it. I had an infection in my arm that was brewing for seven months. He buried the blood test. He hid it so that he couldn't get in trouble, like a child. Like a five-year-old does that. He hides his toy that he wasn't supposed to use and he puts it away in the closet so his mom doesn't find out. The doctor hid this report that said I had an infection. I think I it's mean, such it, a and all shame. My attorney, Go ahead. Sorry, you're attorney. Oh, it's disgusting. All, all my attorney had to do was yeah, subpoena Quest Diagnostics and they go, yeah. here's the report. And it's like, what is the guy thinking? But he's like, a, he's like a, ba- a backyard bully in the backyard in high school going, oh, you're not going to... You're not going to question my authority. Really? I'm just trying to save my arm. (laughs) Gotta be kidding me. 
So it's messed up. Well, and I think it's, again, if you, I always like to look at it from different lenses, right? And we look at it from the interpersonal action, interaction that we're describing now, and there's, there's problems there. But if we back up one or two steps, like, how did he get to that place? Why is he so afraid? Why is he so vulnerable in that role? And okay, maybe it's a litigious society. But again, I, you know, I was warned a 1000 times over as a personal trainer that I'd better always have amazing insurance, because at some point, I will definitely get sued. I can't tell you the number of trainers that said to me, like, someone's going to sue you. And I was like, but I'm just going to do my best. And, you know, yeah, I'm going to do a really quality job. And I'm going to, it's going to be okay. I do have insurance. I'm not saying I don't carry insurance. But it's like this idea that the inevitability of getting sued is out there. And it doesn't matter how you behave. And I think that's really dangerous because I do think we need yeah. to have these things in place where we have, you know, uh, have recourse when we've been mistreated. But on the other hand, if you have an entire system that's functioning around preventing people from suing each other, that's not good either. And somebody made a comment I saw pop up about um, the Google, there's a slippery slope of Google educated people. Oh, it was John. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And I think I think this is the retaliation or the response to this right. inability to communicate effectively with the medical professions. Right. You don't start looking outside of the the revered um, right. respected experts if you feel like you're having good communication with them. So uh, right. I look at like the yeah. the approach that I take with my my clients, for example. So I say to my clients, we are two experts collaborating now, right. what I mean by that is, like, I bring my expertise in nutrition and behavioral psychology, but they're bringing the, their expertise in terms of their own human and life experience. And so when they come to me with questions or they say, I'm not, I'm not sure about this thing that you shared with me or whatever, I don't, it's not, that's them sharing from their, their experience. And so this idea of like, I think it's powerful that we have, you know, Google and this massive trove of information at our fingertips so that we can go to our professionals and ask better questions and be advocates for our care. It shouldn't be seen as a threat to the medical profession that we, in one sense, you could say we basically have access to the same information. We don't have the same lens of expertise to look through the medical, you know, I'm not an oncologist, but I can still access the same information he does or she does. And from there bring an educated question and, and, so it's this speaks to the need of becoming like our own best advocates. We should be our own best advocates, but it's scary because they those doctors are have a lot of power in the medical industry, in the legal industry. They protect doctors; they don't protect patients. So when I decided Follow to the sue money. this doctor, well, when I decided to sue this doctor, he had barely any insurance, and he did that for a reason because nobody could take it from him. You know. But I wasn't doing it for money. Fortunately, I was able to afford all the surgeries and everything that I went through. I was doing it so he wouldn't do it to somebody else. But when you go up against a doctor in the legal system, now I sued him. I was going through chemotherapy. I went into had no hair. Like I, I had a cast on my arm. And so he he looked over at me and he laughed because when he had first seen me in his office, I was like this beautiful model. And now I was suffering from cancer, had no hair. And he looked over and he was like, he made fun of me. And so I, I just think that I think the legal and, the, and you know what we, we won, but we barely won. It was a very hard road. And our case was so egregious. That man was so obvious. I had so much proof and we barely won because the legal system protects the doctors. You know what? Growing up in Canada, we we used to as kids. I don't. We didn't. Not that we didn't know a whole lot, and we didn't have the internet back then. I'm sort of aging myself as well. But we we would hear that seventy percent of the world's lawyers reside in the U.S. I, I don't know if that's factually yeah, correct sure. to this I'm day. Sure, yeah. But but that's the way that we thought about it. Because it, as kids, we used to joke about like we could sue our parents for like disciplining us or something. That was the <laughs> ideas that we had in our head. You know, if we live down there and there's all these lawyers, we could sue our parents because you know, blah blah blah. You know. But it's this idea, like, I think the U.S. in particular is more litigious than any other society around the world, partly connected to money. And so you wonder, well, why does it look like, why do they protect medical profession more than the, the individual patient? Because it's like, follow the money. No, I'll that, tell you why. 
I'll yeah. tell you why. Because there have been so many egregious lawsuits of people who just sue doctors for the tiniest things who used to Fair win. enough. And so they overcorrected. I think she's trying to say they overcorrected. Now they're protecting doctors rather than yes. patients. Yeah. The pendulum swung a bit too far. Yeah. And I get, again, I think this comes back to the foundational problem that you've monetized something that's <laughs> a fundamental right. And you've created situations where people are suing because they can't cover their medical bills. Right. So again, step back away from the system, one more lens, one more, you know, grade and you can see it. I mean, if you're somebody who had a surgery and it didn't go quite to plan and you didn't regain your job afterwards and you're left with a huge amount of medical debt, what's your option? It's bankruptcy or sue the doctor. And so right. when you put people and you see this with cars and car insurance as well, because of the way car insurance works in America, it's another situation where, you know, it, they're not insuring you anymore because they're not willing to pay out when the time comes. And so you're seeing the same thing happening with medical insurance, which means that you're not actually paying for anything when you, <laughs> when you're paying for your insurance, right? And and these are the bigger systems problems that create these unfortunate experiences for people where she goes in and this guy who should have been out of practice, it sounds like long ago, yeah. is still able to practice and get away with it. And God knows what his staff was saying about him. He, yeah. She could not have been the only person having issues. No. So he was getting protected from multiple angles, right? So you know, there's always a few bad apples, but it's like when you start realizing the whole tree is rotten, you better look at the roots. You know, it's like something's up with the roots and the roots are, you know, people can't cover their medical bills. Right. Well, he has to be one of the worst, the worst. But then when we look at like doctors who, I mean, they're, they're human. So we expect some mistakes, some errors. So they should be able to also state that when they made a mistake. So if he made a mistake with her arm, he should have if he wasn't the way he is as a person, but he should have been able to admit that he made a mistake and then, then move forward from there. But if it's not safe, you're not in an environment where it's safe to admit your mistake because it could cost you your practice. You won't, you're not going to do that. Nobody's going to put themselves in that position. Right. So I think, you know, it's interesting because my husband's just had a second collarbone surgery. He had a motorcycle accident um, Mm -hmm. and he powdered his collarbone. I mean, just like, so many pieces. It was impossible to see that there was still a bone in there. And we found this emergency surgeon and he did a really excellent job. Right. And he was, he came out. I remember when he, I was in the waiting room and he came out to tell me, you know, how it had gone. And he was like, well, it was much worse than the x-ray looked. He said, but I'm pretty proud of myself because I'm pretty sure <laughs> that sucker's going to hang together. You know I mean? Not in exactly those words, but that was very much the gist. Right. And so, you know, fast forward a year and a half, my husband's done all the PT. He's done all the things he was supposed to do. Um, and the bone didn't quite heal all the way through, even though it was plated. So he's had to have the surgery repeated. We went back to the same surgeon. And this time, this time, this guy literally went and like went to all of his peers and said, okay, here's what's happened. I really want this to be fixed you know, what can I throw at this? Like, and he came back to us like multiple times. He called us and said, okay, well, we've got this strategy and we've got this strategy. And I think we need to do like six of these things. What do you think about that? And he was so amazingly communicative. About I, this is the the piece that, that is missing. I think that's what we want to address in our discussions around, around deep health is this idea that we, one, you can, you can be human in the course of care, but also that uh, you can communicate with other professionals and treat treat the person as a as a whole as opposed to this series of discrete parts you know and you know christine i wonder if in your experience for example uh you were treated as an arm you know and and really maybe all of us have this thought in the back of our mind like this this doctor sounds like he's probably you know on the sociopathic or even psychopathic spectrum or you know it's like a you know there's something wrong here um but i was on a panel discussion yesterday and we were talking about some of the term narcissist came up because I think it gets bandied about a little too, a little too much now, um, <laughs> yeah, a little too is, easily because yeah. <clears throat> there is a psychiatric disorder. But <clears throat> so I was looking at what are the stats and, and, you know, in the general population, it's less than 0.5%, right? Like they're not, it's not nearly as prevalent as we would think it is, but in the same token, you look at certain professions and you say this profession or this profession attracts more highly these types of individuals. And so I wonder if the medical profession attracts those who have an, you know, a certain need for status, prestige, gratification, that kind yeah. of thing. Certainly within oh, surgeons, right? Oh, I mean, surgeons gosh. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I think that's I mean, pretty well documented. There's some pretty good yeah. research out on that. Um, Did I don't, I don't know if any of you uh, were a fan of Scrubs back in the day, um, but uh, there's a it. oh Doctor Cox. He was a doctor, and he called the surgeons scalpel jockeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, because I had, because I had breast cancer and I had implants after my mastectomies, I went to see plastic surgeons, right? Well, plastic surgeons can be very narcissistic because when you come out of plastic surgery, when you take your breasts off and then you put, you know, implants in, they're like, Oh, this is, this needs to be moved a half an inch here. And this needs to be tucked in here. And you end up having three or four surgeries for reconstruction because they're like, ah, you know, let's tweak this. And the truth is, the medical field, plastic surgeons in particular, it's a business. Yeah. Every single time they go in to tweak something, they're getting paid thousands of dollars. Like it's a, it's their business. If they don't do surgeries, they're not making any money. And so looking back, it's so easy for me to go, you know what? I should have just left that one alone, mm-hmm. left it after, you know what I mean? But I, they're telling you, no, we have to do this now. I'm like, okay, you're the doctor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I've it's got my a... body. <laughs> so I, and the... I wasn't an advocate for myself back then. But how can you advocate for yourself when you're so emotionally worn down from all of these other experiences too? And I think that's the, it's that's the really impossible. tricky area, right? Because that's why you it's need to be impossible. able to trust your doctor is because so you're it... not going to be, it's like somebody in shock. You don't ask them whether <laughs> they should go to the hospital or not. You take them to the hospital because they are in right. shock, you know? So thinking of like, other... The, the, the cost, you know, because the cost of medical care is significant, right? And, and in the U.S., it's got to be like higher than anywhere else in the world. And then there's a, so there's a systematic issue there. So it's funny. It's easy for us in a roundtable discussion to sort of put, well, we should do this or we should do this, you know. But, of course, the, the reality of the situation might not be quite so cut and dry. But I wonder, mm-hmm. is there space in a system like this for, like, a type of patient advocate, which might be the deliverer okay. of new – so essentially you almost got like a case manager, like somebody who, who will direct you to this professional or this one, but they're like, their, their job is to take you on and be an advocate for you. Because as, as Chris, you mentioned, like when you're in this emotionally depleted state, going through chemotherapy, going through surgeries, your body's being for lack of a better term, mutilated in a sense, like you're losing parts of your identity. Like it, it's, it's gotta be immensely like disconcerting to like, lose pieces of you and your identity and all of this. And so to have someone there who can be like a stable emotional anchor for you, I think would be invaluable in this experience. I think it comes back to this treating the person as the whole again, though, because we we often talk about mental health um, and it's so much more commonly talked about today than it's been ever before. It's the idea that mental health is is just as important as physical health. And, you know, we're, we're collaborating on building this deep health model. And it's this idea that like, you can't just look at people as if they're an arm or a leg or a, a, a breast or any of these individual body parts, because whatever you're doing to that part, you're doing to the rest of the person. So like, how do we get mental health professionals into hospitals in higher volumes where they're able to just go and work with the patients that are there? Because even if you stay overnight, if you've ever stayed overnight one single night in a hospital, <laughs> it's mm. like, it's a lot. Okay. Like it's a lot of things going on and it's scary and you can be completely left alone with that, with no support. And the nurses are overburdened most of the time, even in other countries, like my overnight hospital stays weren't all in America. And I can say the nurses did their best, but they've got however many other patients they have to go see as well. So how we insert these care takers or these case managers into the system has to be sort of Like that's your case manager for whatever doctor you go see, not just because you went to this facility. I think they can't be linked to the facility. They have to be linked to the the person. To the system. Yeah. When I wonder though, because we could probably, and we can probably argue for this because the the biggest argument against maybe adding elements of this to the system is cost. And uh, come back to this, like that's, you're always going to be in this battle against how much is this going to cost if you can demonstrate that by adding this element to the system, overall, the, the, the cost of healthcare is going to decrease, you're probably going to, you know, but you, in the U.S., you have this for-profit medical system. That's the kicker, right? Because it's like, well, if you decrease costs, you're decreasing money going into the system. You know, I, I have a friend who's a brain surgeon, and I think he's paid 1800 bucks an hour. Yeah. Like, now, yeah. he's a brain surgeon, and there's, <laughs> like... <laughs> 
he's a brain surgeon, but like 1800 bucks an hour. So yeah, of course he wants to work because every hour he works, he makes what some people make in two weeks or a month. Yeah. Can- I, I think all, yeah, I think it's all very necessary. I, I have a friend who started, who tried to start doing this very thing because what you need is an advocate for you because like take my situation as an example, I had a colon problem, I had an arm problem and a cancer problem. So if, if the arm doctor is not talking to the cancer doctor, he's not talking to the colon doctor, it's madness. And none of it makes sense. If you have an advocate who's like, okay, here's colon, here's her paperwork for her colon. This is what happened. Here's her arm situation. Here's the cancer situation. We have to have it all collectively together so we understand all of this. So we don't have these problems going forward. If you don't have somebody like that, the, you know, the hand's not talking to the, it's like, it doesn't work. So, but she tried to, she tried to do this very thing and it failed because the medical, the medical people, they don't want it because it is going to be cost effective in, in the end. And the insurance companies do want it, but they're not willing to do the studies on it. And so right now it's like, they're, they're, they're not doing anything, but it has to happen at some point. Do we need to take a nuclear bomb to the system? <laughs> I mean, What's you know, so periodically, broken? this is what happens, right? Like, look at society periodically, you know, societies sort of unravel themselves because there, there's a buildup of, it's, you know, it's a buildup of but, all sorts of things that were solutions at the time that seemed like good solutions. But yeah. when you start, like, glomming them on to each other, you get this thing that just doesn't work. And sometimes starting over is easier or better or, you know. <laughs> Depends on how you start over, though. That's the, exactly. that's the key. That's the this key. is the part we haven't done very well yet, right? Exactly. It's like we can't, <laughs> we can't we're so to start over we're <laughs> in too a civilized rea- way. Yeah, <laughs> we're just too we're too reactive. Hmm. Instead of being methodical about this stuff, we're so reactive as a culture, as a community, right? Hmm. I mean, look at COVID. Everybody's been reactive. It's been fear based, but it's not logical. So you have people who are not being diagnosed with cancer. They're being diagnosed, pardon me. They're being diagnosed with late stage cancer because they've shut down the testing centers, right? In the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so you have more people dying from cancer now than ever because of COVID when- Because you're not catching it, yeah. They're not catching it. And they're scaring people to go to the facilities that could catch it. And so it's it's broken, it's wrong. And it's all fear-based. And that's where I get frustrated because- we can't have a medical system that's fear-based. We have to. And the other thing is I'm, I'm, I'm getting my master's at Harvard and I'm in the journalism literature program. The journalists that studied 30 years ago, they had these very stringent rules about what was truth, what was able to be shown on the media because it was fact-checked versus now, which has gone completely off the window. They're not even Mm -hmm. teaching it anymore. So the the X, the ethics involved in all of the media is gone Mm -hmm. and you can see, and you can see that. And so you have like a CNN who's very much to the right and you have wherever left. And then you have another one that's very much to the left. And so you're not having people that are just giving the facts. It's all like my opinion. We can't have people's opinion. That has to be the facts. Yeah, right? the opinions come next, right? You need the facts first. Then you get to have well, the opinions well, and well, the hypotheses, make, right? Yeah, people can make opinions after they see the facts. But if the facts aren't being shown because you're just seeing the reporter's opinion, that's skewing the whole process. It's changing so the it, relationship, too. It's changing it what you look to journalists for, Oh, right? Yes. And they're now in a completely Absolutely. different position in society than they should be because the role They're now in a power position. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly they're the not, problem they're not just feeding the information. They're like, they're now like doctors where they're like, I'm powerful. I'm in control and I'm in Mm -hmm. charge and I'm going to tell you what I think. That's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's well-documentedly dangerous too, right? It's the freedom of the press is, is a really important thing. And we often talk it, talk about it from the perspective of the press should be free to speak the truth. Right. But what's happened is the press has been freed to say whatever they want, which was not the intent. (laughs) Their opinion, which is different. Yeah. Yeah. So then maybe I could take a a giant as a Canadian, a giant deep dive into like conspiracy territory or something like that. If you look as at, at a whole, where, again, it comes back to follow the money. If you think about the media, what you have is now, for example, billionaires who own 
media outlets and then fund Twitter. educational grants or things like that. And then they say, well, so oh, of course um, journalists are going to uh, put yeah. put forward stories that suit whatever slant that these. So we have this accumulation of wealth and you could sort of maybe argue the same thing when it comes to the medical system, the dysfunction we see there is you look at where the funding dollars are coming from, who's paying for this. Um, you know, one of the popular targets of conspiracy theories is uh, good old Mr. Gates there. And I don't have any sort of theories about him, but what you could say is like, so he's, he's invested heavily in certain medical technologies through his, his foundation. And so because of that, and then, and then he's invested heavily in media uh, outlets as well. So because of that, he can use the media to advocate for certain medical practices as well. And it's not to say that may, maybe he is altruistic. I don't know the guy, but you, you look at that and you think the potential for conflict there is enormous because he wields this, you know, his, his wealth has doubled since he left Microsoft, not right. since, you know, so the, I'm picking on him. I'm sure he's got thick skin and can take it and I'm a nobody. <laughs> but the point being that you have this massive amount of power because of funding and where that funding is being directed and the narratives then then being controlled, whether it's the medical or the media. Right. I mean, it's definitely going again, you know, when you look at whenever the concentration of power, AKA in this case, money is in the hands of a, a small group, it doesn't matter what they do with that money. It's never going to appear good to anyone or to everyone. Fair right? There's always yes, going yeah. to be sort of like, he could be the most altruistic person in the world and his motives could be absolutely pure. And then the effect of whatever he chooses to do could totally suck. And he was just wrong because he's one person. And I think this is where the, right. the problem is that is when we're looking at one person and you can take Elon Musk, you can take any of these billionaires. Now they're still human beings. And the reality is they also make mistakes, whether their intentions right. were good, bad, or otherwise, like having all of that money and power in the hands of very few leads us down these roads very quickly. And it's, it's again, historically, repetitive that we see this. <laughs> so it's it's a matter of like, when do we learn this lesson? And how do we yeah. get to a place where we can change it nonviolently? No, you said that so well. And let me expand on it just a little bit. But if we take people like Elon Musk, or the Twitter guy, what's his name? He's, he's oh. stepped down, but Jack Dorsey. He's Jack Dorsey, right? And he becomes the authority on certain subjects. He's just a really smart guy. He's not an authority in the medical world. He's not an authority in the political world. But people see him as a, and he's a billionaire, and then they and then they revere him and they idolize him, and they take his opinion, which is what it is. It's his opinion, and they think they take that as a fact, and it's not. And so that's where it gets all confused because Bill Gates may be a really great guy, but he's not an authority on COVID. <laughs> But his opinion, or toilets in Africa, because that's a big thing too, you know. Like, but his opinion, he messed that up pretty the, royally, by the way. Yeah, but his yeah, but his opinion is revered as like he's an authority. He's not an authority. No, he's got a lot of money, and he was really he's good got at one a lot thing. of money, and so people are listening to him because he's got a lot of money. But let's just yeah. call a spade a spade. The guy's rich. That's it. He's but not yeah. an authority. We're confounding these traits, right? We're deciding that yes. rich equals smart yes. equals powerful yes. equals able to influence yes. things. And, and I yes. think this is, if you really look at the yes. root of it, as long as we perpetuate this ideal You're of right. like social hierarchy, we're going to have the same it's, problems over and right. over again. Communism is the know, answer. It's gotten I'm so joking. much worse because yeah. people's <clears throat> wealth has gotten so great. Yeah. Well, it's, the, it's, a select it's few. out of control. So technology yeah. has allowed the concentration of wealth and, and that again creates this problem because then you're turning to these sources of wealth saying, will you be the altruist that helps us yes. fix, our, fix our broken medical yeah. system, for example, or, you know, and yeah. we haven't even really in one sense touched on like the natural health or we, we call it natural health. I'm like, which, you know, like, why isn't it just health? But, you know, this element of the puzzle, it's not even, not even a part of it. And like Caitlin, I think, for example, you talk to people on a regular basis who are just being like failed at every single level socioeconomically and all you want to do is like be able to help them but they're you know we can even go it starts to like the food they're consuming like yeah. by the time they get to the medical system they're so screwed up yeah and then they're just told like they like for example you have IBS which basically means I don't know what the fuck's going on <laughs> 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 
the most blank fibromyalgia too that's yeah. another favorite or lupus the number of people who walk out with lupus and people are like i don't know what i do with that but i think it's a pill and i'll continue to eat you know bullshit and, right um, right and right okay. right it's yeah, so and true. I think it's this idea of balance, you know, because we talk about all of the power and wealth being concentrated into the very few. Like nature doesn't function this way. Our bodies don't That's function so this way. Like true. systematically, this is the wrong way to do it. Like if you just lit everything on fire <laughs> and let fire take everything over, that's bad. You need the you need the balancing components. And I think this is the lesson hopefully we're gonna learn this century is that like we have to create sustainable like cycles sustainable cycles, because that's how it works anyway, right? So what do we have to do to realize that all the power with all the with one or two people is bad, and all the power with like a huge group of the masses is also bad, right? Because, you know, we like to try to narrow it down to already tried out governmental systems like socialism, communism, Marxism, fascism, pick one, those are all extreme systems, they they do, they all swing the pendulum in one direction or the other. And that's literally the thing as a coach that I'm working on with my clients all the time is like, stop the black or white thinking. There's a spectrum of options here. Mm. So maybe we need to take a little bit from socialism and a little bit from the benevolent dictator model and a little bit from the Native Americans who already had a pretty decent system going for keeping the planet healthy, right? Like there's there's tools around us everywhere that we can be using if we stop polarizing ourselves. Well, I thought that was what the American government structure was supposed to do. Don't you have the president in lieu of a monarch, the, Mm -hmm. you know, judiciary in lieu of something, the House of Representatives for the common people, the Congress or wherever the senator said, I don't know. Clearly, I know a whole bunch about how the U.S. government (laughs) functions. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is, right, you have this piece over here that represents, you know, maybe the aristocrats, this piece over here that represents the common people, this person over here, which is like a figurehead monarch. And then this person over or this group of people over here, which represent, you know, maintaining the laws of the country and so on. It was supposed to divide up the power so you don't get a concentration of mm. it. It was a, representat- a representative government, a.k.a. a republic, which if you look at the longest standing um, civilizations, a lot of them were republics for this reason, because you balance the power out better because you're representing mm. more of the, the population and the different people in it, right? So that's a, that's a balanced-ish system just haven't gotten it right yet <laughs> like because it, like it's not impervious in place, but... to corruption is the problem lobbyists <laughs> in this case in this iteration no. of the cycle right you no. want to go all fantasy geek there's like the wheel of time the wheel weaves it's the wheel wills it's the new no series lobbyists. on amazon if you haven't seen it <laughs> so how, how do you, yeah how do you get because there's there's you think about like there's you know for example pharmaceutical interests and this is not me trying to necessarily knock or tear apart the pharmaceutical industry because there's been some incredible innovations that have come out of it but in the same token once again you've got a concentration of wealth and power and and influencing laws and where are the checks and balances here well okay there, there are none <laughs> totally right um, okay. Let, okay let let me give you an example did you get that fly by the way is there a fly no it is there? totally <laughs> a fly my cat's coming though my cat is, he's seen it now so it's not long for this world don't worry <laughs> oh my god you're so well like, swoosh what were you said at the beginning i was like the magical something that's yes! what i was doing yes. you're, you're so. the wizard and you're so well spoken you're so well spoken oh, even you. like trying to catch this thing um <laughs> Procter I've been in this chair a while. <laughs> I've got to wiggle something, you know. <laughs> Procter and Gamble. I don't know if you guys saw this. Procter and Gamble just took off many of their products off the shelves. And they said they voluntarily did, which is a lie, by the way. Procter and Gamble had put benzene, willingly put benzene, which is a carcinogenic, which causes cancer, into their air sprays, their, their sprays for deodorant, their sunscreens. They're, they're lotions mm-hmm. for years. And they finally, on November 23rd, uh, voluntarily took them off the market. How nice. And, and, and no, this is, my, this is the point. Their Procter & Gamble stock didn't go down one penny. Nope. Not one penny. Now, the amount of people who are going to have cancer because of those products is going to be so enormous. Their stock didn't move one penny. I mean, why did not, why didn't all of us not dump every bit of their stock? Because we live in a world that reveres money. They don't care about the people that are going to die from this, this chemical that has been a known carcinogenic for years. Yeah. It's disgusting. I, what was that book? Did I, 
I know we're all old enough, or at least some of us might be old enough to have. Had I know what you're talking about. That I, book in I, high school. I know what you're talking it, about. It wasn't Animal Farm. What was it? Oh, Lord, not Lord of the Flies. No, no, no. It's about. No, um, no, no. The it was something like Orwell, A Brave New World. Was, oh my God! It, I I know what you're talking about. All messed up. But it was yeah. what prompted FDR to put in all the regulations on the meatpacking industry because it highlighted what was actually going on in the industry. And people were getting killed and it was like really unsanitary and lots of people were getting sick it. from the meat. Mm-hmm. What the what the heck was the name of well, it? How about, the guy, how about the guy that did the McDonald's for 30 days? That was pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Morgan Spurlock Remember? and uh, Super Size Me. Exactly. Super Size, Size Me. Yeah. But now, to, to be fair, there was somebody else who did that same thing, but did it a little bit differently and showed you could be reasonably healthy. But you, so uh, there's also, and this yeah, isn't too. healthy? <laughs> we're not going to promote that one. Oh, that's a whole nother couple of hours, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, I know. And and the irony of, I, oh, no, I don't want to say it. Um, the irony of a health pass to get a McDonald's. But anyways, um, there, I said it. <laughs> uh, but the, the, I don't know. She's, I, she's I, going for the. She's going. I'm getting for the cat. It. Oh, the, the cat! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, love it. <laughs> well, th- this this is real life, right? And so, and I think it's like life. now now that we're like getting comfortable with each other. Now we're like <laughs> now the personalities. <laughs> we're like all right. Now now yeah. we're gonna like let let, let fly here. Um, get it. But, we definitely uh, have to do this again it. when like I can get on the, at the right time and my internet doesn't go crazy and. Like this is this is good. We got a good team here. Everybody's yeah. so well spoken. Definitely. And this everybody knows really their time. stuff. Like <laughs> every person, every person knows their stuff. Yeah. So Which nice. is why we're doing Very this refreshing. to be fair, because we, you know, especially in the world today, it's it's a lot yes. harder to create environments where people can collaborate effectively. Because this is literally what I was saying about the solution to the problem is having these checks and balances and these collaborations. With cats. Which is like I saw Caitlin's cats know. earlier again too. So I saw Caitlin's cat too. Yeah, <laughs> but, but um, this is exactly what we're trying to do. Like Chris and I no, came this together. Is working. And, and this is working. I've dragged Caitlin into the mix. Not not really dragged. I'm like, but I was like, we need a gut health specialist here as well. And, yeah, no, you know, she's great. All of them. Um, yeah, because we need to have these discussions. We also because we want to raise awareness. Like you have a degree of power and autonomy, you know, individually, but like collectively. How how do you start voice. breaking down some of these structures? It's like you have to come together and talk about this. We have to create awareness and education, but we have to create it in a way that people actually want to consume. Because, you know, I, I say like in, in, in like say the health in it, like Caitlin, uh, Chris and I, we're all coaches in this industry. We're not in competition with each other. We're in Never. competition with Netflix and Snickers, you know, or <laughs> Doritos or Mountain Dew. Like that's who we're in competition with because right. they're hijacking our you. brains, right? Or even the fitness mm-hmm. snacks. Oh, 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 another, and that's another six to seven hours of music <laughs> if you want to have a rant about that. People uh, get mad when you tell them they're healthy fitness facts. Oh, they're quest bars? Caitlin, you and I should have a conversation about quest bars and gut health. Ready? Go. Yeah. <laughs> no. oh I think people are receptive to conversations that are intellectual mm-hmm. and, and people have the facts and they have the expertise. All of us have that. So nobody, we don't get on here and go, oh, well, so-and-so company and, you know, screw them or whatever. We're not like pointing fingers. We're just being logical and factual. And, and solution saying, focus. Like and there solution are solutions focus. here. You know, there's stuff we can do. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. systemic issues we have that we may not personally be able to affect, but there's absolutely <laughs> personal choices we can be making to nudge things in a direction that's better. You know, and this is, we, John and I have been talking about this model for expansive change and it starts mm-hmm. with yourself. Right. And, and it's really Absolutely. interesting. I, I saw this TikTok the other day and it was this mm-hmm. guy has the, he had three concentric circles, much like our concentric circle model yes. that we were building. But it was the idea that you're, you're building your, your life backwards. If you start with have, and I yeah. wish I had like a, I want a whiteboard now so I can just be like, I love that. But it's like you start in the center with have, and then it's do, and then you figure out who you are based on what you have and what you're doing. And he says, it's backwards. You should figure out who you want to be and be that person and then do the things that that person would do. And then you will have the things that the, that person will have. And so you flip it on your head. It's, it's really flipping the capitalist model on its head of saying like, actually all of these accolades and all of this achievement is not who I am. I need to figure out who I am first and then build from there. And I think it's a really important, like kind of cultural shift we need to try to generate. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is what we're committed to doing is saying, no, actually, I do have power to affect change and I do mm-hmm. have power to 
improve my health and do the right things for me and my family and those around me, even if I exist in a difficult environment. There's something yeah. I can do. Well, what's really interesting is, is, you know, Christine, you went through this when you were basically confronted with your mortality and the, the sort of anger that you said you felt. And, and I'm opening the door for you to share a bit about this rather than me telling your story. But when you discovered, yeah. in a sense, you didn't really know who you were and now you're faced with like you might have, you know, you have a finite amount of time to live that's a lot shorter than you thought. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I had to be, yeah, I was pushed against the wall to really figure out who I was because for the longest time I was just going, you know, the way everybody thought I should go, but not introspectively trying to figure out who I was and what was my goal for life. Right. And when you're faced with a diagnosis and somebody, a doctor says to you, this is your percentile chance of survival at 41. You're like, holy shit. Like, what have I done for 41 years? And if I'm able to live through this chemotherapy, what do I want to do moving forward? It's a really difficult time to go through that, obviously, from a physical and emotional perspective. But it's also you have a lot of downtime when you're sick from chemotherapy, when you're sitting in bed, making choices of what you're going to listen to. And all day long, I could listen to the voice saying, you're not good enough. Everything that you had, your value is gone and all those things. Or I could say to myself, okay, that's, that person didn't work. Let's figure out a new way going forward in the hopes that you're going to survive. And I started to figure out who I was and who I was, was somebody that wanted to serve somebody that wanted to give hope to other people. Now I could have gotten stuck in the materialism that I coveted for so long or the external beauty that I had. And I just was like, that didn't work for me. I was lonely. It didn't feel good. Uh, something was missing. And I think what was missing was that serving. And so since my diagnosis, it's been 10 years and well, eight years cancer free today. But I'm almost want to sing happy birthday or something like that, because it's right? like the, the rebirth of Christine, you know? Yeah. But I think that, you know, a lot of people go in the wrong direction and they take mm. all that pain and all that suffering and get bitter. And, and have unforgiveness like to that doctor, but I don't want to have unforgiveness to that doctor because then he controls me. So I don't want to, I don't want him to have any more control in my life than he already had. And so my decisions moving forward, all we have is our reaction, right? That's it. How we react to trauma, how we react to pain, how do we react to the diagnosis? And my reaction was, I'm not going to give away my power anymore. I'm going to figure out who I am. And however that whatever that looks like, I'm going to do that moving forward because I have to find some joy in my life. And finding joy for me was sharing my story and helping other people figure out their joy and, and teaching people how critical self-esteem is. Because the decisions that I made, especially with this doctor who bullied me, those decisions were based from a, a place in my life where I had no self-esteem. I was allowing that man to bully me. On some level, I have to take some responsibility for that. So I had to build my self-esteem up enough, right? To make a new life for myself, to not allow people in my life like that. And I think when you're pushed against the wall, like I was, you either go in one direction or you go in the other. <laughs> yeah. You find out, you find out who you are. And I think that's the key of what, what you were just saying. It's really amazing. I think you're an amazing yeah. person and I, I love that you're out there telling your story the way that you are. I think it's super empowering for people because this is where people get their their courage from is they, they find someone or yeah. a story they can understand and relate to. And they go, okay, I can do it too. That's just so human. It's so beautiful. You know, yeah. like it's just really, if she can moment. do it. I can do it's it. It's the best yeah. thing. Yeah. We're, we're so. like story, yeah. story making machines. Well, I mean, you'd like to call us a meat machine in a skin suit, but um, <laughs> that's Chris's terminology, but, but we're, we're story making computers in a sense in our brain. Mm -hmm. That's how we, is how we cultivate a sense of meaning to what happens to us as we create a story around that. And so we read ourselves into the stories of other people. So choosing you know, uh, someone who was struggling right. with cancer might choose to read themselves into your story. And, and this, this is what gives me hope. And that's, I mean, that's why each one of us shares our stories. And, and in the mentorship that yeah. I do, I really try to help other coaches that I mentor too to bring out your story, bring yeah. that, that's that human element, because this is where we can create yeah. change. Mm. It's the authenticity, right? Because that's, that's how like we're real we're, authenticity. I mean, yeah. It sounds weird to say like real authenticity versus like <laughs> hashtag influencer authenticity. Yeah. But you know, this is another, another response to the mistrust of the, 
the system, right? Is yeah. we now have influencers. We don't have media people. We have influencers, right? Who are catching our attention and right. inspiring us to do something. And I think it's, this is why this is so important. This work that we're trying to all do in our own ways is that if there are going to be people out there who are influencing, they, they need mm-hmm. to be people who are hopefully doing things for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. From a place of service, like you say. Yeah. I love that. I think it's a really like clearly we we're going to have to do this have this conversation mm-hmm. again or something around it because I mean as as each one I of us talks I'm like it. I'm just like oh my gosh there's so many rabbit holes my we brain so wants to, get, yeah. <laughs> to go down. <laughs> so we're we're definitely going to do this again but you know if to to bring it home it's like if you if you wanted to give somebody one digestible nugget sort of to take away from what we've been talking about today uh what would it be I mean, I would say be your best advocate, but you can't be your best advocate if you're, if you've built your self-esteem on sand, right? You have to build your self-esteem and build your self-talk on solid ground, whatever that looks like to you. And once you have a solid self-esteem, you can make decisions with doctors or in life with peers or in a job or in relationally that are, they're going to, that are going to help you, right? Not just being pushed around by other people. You got to have a solid self-esteem. Love that. Thank you. I want to build on that and say part of being your best advocate is advocating for the help you need. Not, you know, being fighting for yourself doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an isolated island that's you against, but it's like being willing to say, I need this help and putting yourself in that, being an advocate in a vulnerable place as well. So that's what I'd like to add to that thought. I don't have anything to add. I think that was perfect. (laughs) That summed it up really nicely. How about you, Caitlin? Yeah, I totally agree. Ditto. There we go. Awesome. Well, well we we'll definitely you do guys this again. For your patience with my computer <laughs> battles tonight. I, please, please invite me back. Please. <laughs> Absolutely. I loved yeah. it. You guys, are, you all of you, Chris, you're and Caitlin, you're and I already know you are such a, a wonderful speaker, but you both are so well spoken. So thank well, you. Thank it's you. a privilege to be on this panel with you. Thank you so you much. You too. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, it's been right. a pleasure. We are starting this Deep Health Academy and try to start to change the narrative around what it means to get healthy and fit and to lead a fulfilling life. Because in the end, this is what our clients come to us for, whether they think they want a six pack or not, right? Like for the vast majority of people, if they do manage to achieve that goal, they still are the same person they were before they had a six pack. And a lot of the issues that they were feeling haven't been resolved. So there's mindsets, beliefs, identities, and we have to bring them into our conscious awareness. If we're going to create change, the process of bringing into our conscious awareness can be uncomfortable because now we're going to see our flaws as they are. We're going to see ourselves without the filter, but with compassion, we can look at it with a curious desire to understand. And so compassion and awareness is where we create transformation.